If you will, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. For the next to last message in this great chapter, Romans chapter 11, I've entitled this message, The Glorious Good News, All Israel Will Be Saved. The Apostle Paul is coming to the end of his answer to the question, Has God totally and finally rejected the Jews? with verses 25 to 32 of Romans 11, with the culminating answer to that provocative question. You follow along as I read Romans 11, verses 25 to 32. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the Gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. You may remember last time from verses 16 to 24, we showed you a series of warnings culminating in one paragraph of a great warning against Gentile arrogance in the church. Because it looked as though, in the minds of the Gentile believers in Rome, that God had totally and finally rejected Israel as His chosen people. The Gentile Christians in this church at Rome had tended to become proud and arrogant thinking that it might very well be the Gentile nations themselves with whom God has now exclusively decided to bless. And Paul warns them in Romans 11, verses 20 to 22, that while it is true that unbelieving Israelites have been broken off from the olive tree, the olive tree, of course, representative for the salvation of God, And it is true that Gentile believers who are likened to wild olive branches who have been grafted into the olive tree of salvation in place of the natural Jewish branches which have been cut off should nevertheless, as Gentile believers, be humble and awed by this and not to be proud and arrogant toward the Jews. He says, look with me in verse 20. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. But if they persist in their arrogance, Paul sternly warns them that they too are in danger of showing themselves to actually be false branches. And like the original natural branches themselves, were in danger of the very severe judgment of God And he says in Romans 11.22, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. In other words, if you persist in arrogance as a Gentile person, believing yourself to be the sole proprietor of God's great blessing, 
and that you even become arrogant against the Jews who are those natural branches who have been cut off. If you, if you stay in that kind of state, a perpetual arrogance and a boastfulness and a pride, you're going to show yourself to be a false branch also and not a real branch and you'll be cut off by the Lord. Paul then, in verse 24, goes on to state that if a wild olive branch who is real and genuine and who is humble and in awe of what God has done in His mercy and grace, if you're like that, you need to understand that if God can supernaturally graft you as a wild olive branch into the natural tree, it's nothing, nothing at all for Him to take future natural branches, that is Jews, future Jews, and graft them back into their own olive tree. How natural is that? And God can do it, and He will do it. And what He's attempting to get across to these Gentile believers is the fact that He has every confidence in God's prior promises to the nation of Israel, which will ultimately be fulfilled for them. And he unfolds exactly what is going to take place in this regathering of Israel in verses 25 to 32. This is, my friends, the culmination of his answer, will God keep his word? Everything that he said up to this point from Romans chapter 9 verse 1 to chapter 11 verse 24 is really to be answered like this. Will God abandon his people totally and finally? Here's the emphatic answer. No. You think I'm long-winded? It takes Paul from Romans 9.1 all the way to chapter 11, verse 24 to say one word. No. God will keep His promises. And of course, if you're like me, you're tempted to say, well, okay, I, I, I get it. I get the picture. If you're saying all the way from Romans chapter 9, verse 1, to chapter 11, verse 24, that the answer to the question, has God totally and finally, ultimately rejected His people? If that answer is an emphatic no, then the obvious next question is, what's going to happen? It's not enough for you to tell me, no, God hasn't rejected His people ultimately and finally. What's next? What's going to happen? If you tell me that God is going to take natural branches, these Jews, in the future, and He's going to graft them in to the olive tree along with these wild olive branches, these Gentile believers, and if He's going to put them together in the same olive tree, what's that going to look like? And when is that going to occur? When is that going to happen? What are the specifics? You know, it's as though... We're watching a movie, and in the unfolding of that movie, we see in Act 1 that God chose the Jews, and He set His love upon them, and they were supposed to respond to His love. And just like what we read in Ezekiel 16, He picked them up, and He washed them off, and He put them in fine clothes, and He made them look like royalty, and they spurned all of that. And at the end of Act 1, God says, Okay, that's what you're going to do, then so be it. And act two, as the curtain unfurls, and as that curtain flows away, you see not Jews, but Gentiles. And God is loving them, and He's calling them, and He's setting His heart upon them, and they're coming to faith in Jesus Christ in droves. And as you go through Act 2, you see this, this prominent display of affection upon the Gentiles. And anybody who's watching that play would say to themselves, but, but what happened to the Jews in Acts 1? What's their future? Is that it? Is that all? Are they done with? Is Act 1 uh, the final curtain for them? And just as soon as you begin to ask those questions, Paul says, Act 3. The curtain is unfurled and it flows away. And what do you see in Act 3? 
God keeps His Word. Acts 3 is God showering His blessing again on the Jews, even though they've come of age, like Ezekiel 16 says, and even there, even in their abominations and in their idolatries and in their whoredoms, He says, I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to set my affection on you. And we're in the middle of Act 3 now. And the question is, how's it going to end? Well, what's, what's the end of the drama? How do these things unfold? What's God going to do? What's it going to look like? I want to see this play. I want to see this movie. I can't wait until it comes out in DVD. I've got to turn it on. I've got to see what's going to happen. Don't just tell me in the middle of Act 3 that God isn't through with the Jews. What does it look like? You want to see what it looks like? You want to... See the sneak peek? Paul says, I'll give it to you. And he gives it to us in four ways. In verses 25 to 32. Four ways. I'll give each of these outline points to you progressively. Let me give them to you now. Let's call them four stanzas in this third act. Number one, a partial hardening and then Gentile fullness. A partial hardening and then Gentile fullness. Verse 25. So you've got a partial hardening... And then secondly, you have a planned salvation for all the Jews. So you have a partial hardening and then this Gentile fullness, verse 25. And then you have a planned salvation for all of the Jews. And we see that in verses 26 and 27. And then the third stanza is a predestining love by God based on grace, gifts, and calling. A predestining love. You have a partial hardening, then a planned salvation, and then a predestining love by God, not based upon anything except grace and gifts and callings, and that's verses 28 and 29. And then this magnanimous crescendo of a response that I call a pledge of mercy. A pledge of mercy in the midst of mankind's disobedience. In verses 30 to 32. Let's talk first of all about the partial hardening and then the Gentile fullness. Look back at verse 25 with me. Lest you be wise, and Paul is continuing that theme, my friends. Don't be arrogant, you Gentiles. Don't be arrogant. Lest you be wise in your own conceits. Lest you think you're the final act of the drama of history. Lest you think you're a part of the in crowd. Lest you think you're... The favored people of God. He says, I want you to understand this mystery. And there's no mystery to this word mystery, by the way. No mystery here. It just means God hasn't revealed it prior to this, but now He's going to. That's, that's all He means by it. Progressive revelation. This is what Paul is now going to tell the world for the first time ever. This is amazing. This is the first time in recorded history when Paul puts pen to papyrus. This is what he says. I'm going to tell you something that has never before been revealed in the history of the world. And he says, brothers, meaning brothers and sisters, I tell you this mystery. Don't be wise. Don't think that you're the in crowd exclusively and only. Gentiles, listen to this. Don't be proud. Here it is. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. And someone's going to immediately say, that's not news. He's already told us that. That's not any revelation. That's no mystery. Aha, but he says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until, that is so important, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now that is revelatory. That is very important. That is very, very crucial to understand. Never before, even in the Old Testament, had there ever been the plan of God revealed for these two entities, Gentiles and Jews, to have a plan in which the two come together in such a way that we find out that God says, 
when the Jews rejected their Messiah, I'm going to go to the Gentiles, Act 2. I'm going to save them. I'm going to set my love upon them. And just as Act 2 comes to its final culmination, everybody's thinking the play's over. That's it. I'm going to do something that you wouldn't believe and I'm going to set my love upon the Jews, the nation of Israel. And everybody's going to think that once the last Gentile person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, that's it. That's all there is. God has rejected the Jews. Maybe even the Gentiles themselves have become the replacement for the nation of Israel. God has set His love upon the Gentiles. They're the new Israel of God. That's it. God is through with every single ethnic Israelite. And God says, no, you ain't seen nothing yet. I am going to do a thing that has never before been foretold, and here it is. As a part of God's sovereign plan, once the entirety of His electing grace has been lavished upon the Gentiles so that every last Gentile person has been brought into God's kingdom, then God turns His salvation historic plan right to the Jews again. This is tremendous. You see, the first time, for the first time in history, Paul is revealing through a revelation from God that Israel has been set aside as a nation with only a small remnant of believing people so that God could complete a huge ingathering of believing people called the Gentile world just so God could turn His face back to the Jews. This is the first time, I tell you, ever, including the Old Testament, that this sovereign, gracious plan of God is spelled out with this kind of detail. And according to the language of this text, verse 25, it's only until the full number, from that Greek word pleroma, from that full number of Gentiles are brought by God into the kingdom of God, and it turns Paul says, at the end of the age. You say, it doesn't say that. Well, it does. By strong implication. You say, where so? Look back at chapter 11. Verse 11. Through their trespass, that is the Jews' trespass, singular word, talking about solidarity there, salvation has come to the Gentiles, the Gentile world, so as to make Israel jealous. And if their trespass means riches for the world, that's the Gentile world, the world of Gentile believers, and if their failure, the Jews' failure, means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Well, when is that? Verse 13, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. I'm doing everything in my ministry in order to make my fellow Jews jealous. They see the Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. They say, I want that salvation. I want that desperately. Some of them would be saved even in Paul's time. And in the end, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the Gentile world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Physical resurrection. The resurrection of the dead. That's the end of the age. That's when it's going to happen. That's why this word until is so pregnant with meaning. In verse 25, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until, until the eschatological age is dawning, which begins now and will find its culmination in the future when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. I believe that specifically means when the very last Gentile person as the elect of God sees through the gift of repentance and faith, they're coming into the kingdom of God. Until that day dawns. And we're in the middle of that. Or somewhere. Somewhere in God's scheme. We're there. And I can't tell you exactly where. But we're in that. God is just lavishing His love upon the Gentile world. And you're recipients of that. And I'm recipient of that. And all the while, there's a partial hardening. 
And it's a hardening because Israel, according to verse 7, failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, that small remnant, but the rest were hardened. And they were given a spirit of stupor, eyes that wouldn't see and ears that wouldn't hear. Down to this very day, he says, they've become, according to verse 21 of chapter 10, a disobedient and contrary people. They have a partial hardening. But there is a full number of Gentiles. God's just not indiscriminately saving Gentile people, there is a discriminant number and that number will see its full realization. And when that last Gentile person is saved, then the clock strikes 12 and God is back to dealing with the nation of Israel. And we move from a partial hardening to a planned salvation. Look at verses 26 and 27. And in this way, in this way, what way? When the Gentile world is ultimately and totally and finally and completely saved. And in this way, the clock strikes noon and then all Israel will be saved. What a statement. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them, which I read to you from Ezekiel 16, when I take away their sins. And I say, don't, don't forget, Paul's already alluded to this. Verse 12 of chapter 11 now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, here it is, how much more will the Jews have their full inclusion? Full inclusion. The Gentiles are going to have their full number come in and the Israelites are going to have their full number come in. You say, how much is that? I have no idea. I have no idea, but I know this. It's full. It's full. It's all that God wants. When the resurrection from the dead occurs, the age has come to an end. This is God's doing. This is what Jesus Himself said. Look back at your Bibles at Mark chapter 13. It's exactly, I believe, what Jesus is alluding to in Mark chapter 13. When He says, Mark 13.10, And the Gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. That's what's happening now. That's what world missions is all about doing. Verse 11, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say what is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and the child will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved the gospel will be preached in such a way that ultimately there will be a worldwide reaction against it and there will be a conflagration like no other. And it's coming. And in Luke chapter 21, Luke 21, at the end of verse 23, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And that's why I believe that he's talking about, of course, the end of the age. But some of you might be saying, but what does Paul precisely mean when he says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. And surely this is a loaded phrase. Much debated. But here, I think, is the best understanding of it. Some would say, well, when it says all Israel will be saved, it's talking about the elect of both Jews and Gentiles. It's, it's the new people of God made up of both Jews and Gentiles. That's what that phrase means, all Israel will be saved. But that surely cannot be what Paul means. It would wreak havoc with the distinct categories that he's consistently used with that term Israel in Romans 9-11. to Can't mean that. Others think that Paul is referring only to the elect. 
within Israel when he says all Israel will be saved. And that certainly could be true. All the elect within Israel, all that are destined to be saved. Maybe that's consistent with Paul's phrase in Romans 9, the first part of it, when he says not all Israel is true Israel. Or maybe he's talking about the true Israel here, the elect Israel. But I don't think that's the right interpretation, and I'll tell you why. If you took it to mean elect spiritual Israel, you'd have Paul changing his use of Israel from verse 25 to verse 26. And I don't think he's doing that. I think he's talking about the nation Israel. I don't think there's any reason to limit this to elect Israel, spiritual Israel. You have to have a pretty good reason to do that, and I don't think that reason is there. You don't have a need to do that. Here in Romans 11, he doesn't have a need to do that. In fact, he has a reason not to do that. Because here, he's speaking in categories which seem to be speaking of the nation of Jews as the people chosen by God. And even here, when he speaks of all Israel, without meaning every single Israelite, that's an important distinction to be made. He doesn't have to qualify himself by saying every single Israelite. He could do that, but he doesn't do that. He simply says all Israel. He's talking about solidarity there. He's talking about a corporate reality. He's emphasizing the corporate dimension of the term Israel. No, what he has here is a reference to a future time at the end of the age when those who constitute the nation of Israel at the time of the complete number of Gentiles who are saved will be saved themselves by the merciful hand of a sovereign God. It's Acts th- it's Act 3 in our drama. It's nearing the end. And the corporate solidarity of Jews living at the time of the fullness of this Gentile salvation will themselves be redeemed. That's what he's saying. And someone's going to say, yeah, but do you, you mean every single one of them at that time? Yes. Yes, God will redeem the nation of Jews who are living at that time in a miraculous salvation that will be unprecedented within world human history. That's why it's so cataclysmic. That's why it's so incredibly important. And of course, all of those at that time who are Jews who are saved are a part of elect Israel. Of course. But that's when God is going to give all of those blessings, all of those Old Testament promises, all of those old prophetic warnings, all of those Prophetic blessings coming out of those warnings. Yes, this is what you were. This is what you were. But I picked you up again and I washed you off. And I'm going to give you this everlasting covenant. And I'm going to give it to you through my son, Jesus Christ. And when you believe on Jesus Christ, then you'll be saved. And all of these blessings, both spiritually and nationally, will be brought to the forefront. And I'll keep my promises. Every one of them. Yes, there'll be a time, the Bible says, Jeremiah 30, verse 7 of Jacob's trouble, but there will also be Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 27, Jacob's reward. Yes. And that's what Paul does in quoting Isaiah. Look back at verse 26. He quotes the prophet Isaiah and he says, Isaiah chapter 59, verses 20 and 21, in the first part, and then a little clause from Isaiah 27, 9 in the second part. Paul specifically, I believe, ties here the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is another reason why I think this is happening at the end of the age. There is a deliverer who will come out of Zion, literally. Out of. Who will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob, of course, being another term for Israel. And what will occur when Christ comes in His second coming glory? He'll restore the covenant that He made with Israel. And He says, this is My covenant that I made with them when I take away their sins. In other words, the final culmination, the finality of Act 3, the ultimate finality of God's covenant keeping toward His chosen people will be realized in the second coming glory of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. You want to get a little sneak preview of that? Look back at that Isaiah text, chapter 27. This is marvelous. This is marvelous. Isaiah 27. This is what God is going to do. Isaiah chapter 27, look at verse 6. 
In the days to come, this is the prophecy, Jacob will take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore by this the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no asherim or incense altars will remain standing, for the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes, there it lies down and strips its branches. When its boughs are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a a fire of them, for this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. What a promise keeper, our God. You want to look at another affirmation of this? Look at Zechariah. One of those minor prophets at the end. Zechariah. You want to see what God is going to do? Zechariah chapter 12. Paul doesn't give us all of these details. We can fill in a few. Zechariah 12. Look at verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day. A specific day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites, and all the families that are left each by itself and their wives by themselves. Then verse 1, chapter 13. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. They're going to have their sin taken away. This is marvelous. Look at chapter 13, verse 8. In the whole land, declares the Lord, in the whole land... Two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. One-third shall be left alive. And whenever that day comes, it's in the future, I'll put that third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon My name and all of these Jews, I will answer them. And I will say, they are My people. And they will say, the Lord is My God. And on what basis? On what basis does this come? Does it come because one day all of these Jews are just going to finally, after thousands of years of spiritual stupor, they're just going to finally raise up, their eyes are going to be open and say, Aha! Now I see that Jesus is the Messiah. No. It comes to them because of a predestining love. Look at verse 28 of Romans 11. As regards the gospel, yes, presently they are enemies of God for your sake, for the Gentiles' sake. But as regards election, this is God's electing grace. This is His sovereign plan from all eternity. They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Oh, God keeps His word. God keeps His word. And here's where Paul sort of culminates with this whole deal. And he says, if you want to ask me the question, how is this all going to come about? What are the details? I'm going to give you a little foretaste. 
And I'm going to tell you that it's all based upon the character of our God. And it's all based on His electing grace. He says, yes, yes. For now, and for the sake of full Gentile inclusion into this gospel of salvation, the Jews are God's enemies. Yes, it is true. That's the way it is right now. A partial hardening exists. The Israelites, today, God's enemies. They reject Jesus Christ. Yes, it's true. But there will come a day when God will keep His promises because they will be seen as beloved for the sake of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Aren't you glad you serve the kind of God that doesn't forget about what He promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Folks, that happened thousands of years ago. God doesn't forget that. That's all a part of His plan. Why? Because He elects to do so. His predestining love. And I say, what love is this? What love is this? It will be because His gracious love is awesome. Awesome. Grounded upon His character and not ourselves. Oh, if this had been up to us, if this had been something we chose, if this had been something we thought we could do, we'd forever perish. It's not based on anything except His electing grace and His gifts and His calling. Look at verse 29. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Oh, please. Please don't forget Romans 11.29. His gifts, all of those things that He said about the Jews in Romans 9, they have the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and even Jesus coming through their line. All of that will be fulfilled. Yes. God keeps His Word. And He does it not on the basis of something inherent within us. He does it on the basis of grace. And gifts and calling because they're irrevocable. God hasn't jettisoned the Jews for the sake of the Gentiles. You can't be proud about that. You can't be superior about that. You can't be guilty of a superiority of spirit over the Jews thinking that God has rejected them forever. His gifts and His callings are irrevocable. You think he says to no purpose in Matthew one twenty one that Emmanuel has come, for it is he who will save his people from their sins? You think that's to no effect? Well, his people have changed. No, sir. The Jews at the time of Jesus Christ's return will see the irrevocable displays of promise keeping toward them. That's what he's saying. And you say, what kind, of, what kind of motivation? What kind of motivation would God have to do this? Is it so man could be exalted? Is it so man could see some level of superiority? Is it so that one race could say, we're better than you are? We figured it out sooner than you did? Is it for somebody to say, no, it's, it's God working with us, not you? No, we were able to see finally and ultimately what God was driving toward for thousands of years and we finally woke up and we finally figured it out. It's all about us. And you know, if there was anybody in that Gentile congregation made up vast majority of Gentiles, few Jews, there was anybody who had any doubts about what the motivation of God was, Paul just slams the door shut with the fourth and last point, a pledge of mercy in the midst of mankind's disobedience. Look at verse 30. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God. That's the Gentiles. You were once disobedient to God. When I called the Jews, and when I told the Jews to be a light to the nations, 
And I told them to live in a different way and wear different clothing and eat different food. It was so I could show them to be different than every other nation. And I was going to be Yahweh God to them. And I was going to show them how different that they should be so that all of the nations of the earth could say, I want a God like that. You think every one of those those Gentile warring armies who came against Israel and became obliterated couldn't see that Yahweh was obviously on their side. It would be a motivation for every one of them to say, I'm going to go join that army. I'm going to go be a part of that people. But you know what they did? They rejected it. Even in the midst of all the obvious evidence, they rejected it. And so they were disobedient. All these nations of the earth, they were pagans. He says, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, now, when God goes into Acts 2, He opens your eyes by a sovereign decree. He unstops your ears and He he causes you to actually hear the true gospel message of Jesus Christ and His offer of eternal life. And He plants His own heart within your heart and you respond to the gospel message and you say, I see it. I see it. You were once disobedient, but now you've received mercy. And He says, because of their disobedience, the Jews, the very ones whom God said, I'm going to dress you up differently than all the Gentile nations around you and you're going to eat all the different food and you're going to have Me as your God I'm going to say to them, they are my people. And how did they respond? They were wallowing around in the blood of their placenta. And they should have responded. He put a robe on them and he put earrings on them and he put fine linen and clothes on them and they should have had every opportunity to respond to everything that Yahweh was doing. And how did they respond? They were disobedient. They didn't respond to the message. They were supposed to be the ones taking the message of Yahweh to the Gentile nations around them. And they didn't do it. They themselves were disobedient. They sacrificed their own children on the the altar of the worship of a false god. They even killed their own children to a false god. That's how committed they were. And so what does God do? He righteously says, then I will set you, the Jews, at this time and in that day, those of you who are disobedient, just like He did with the children of Israel in the desert, and when He said, there are only going to be two of you survive, and all the rest of you are going to be like dead carcasses in the wilderness. And they all died. And God was righteous in doing so, because they were disobedient. And there was a little bitty small remnant of them. We don't know how small. But they survived because of God's electing grace. And as they come through the time of Jacob's trouble, when those Gentile worlds are all saved and every last person is in, God turns to Act 3 and He says, You know what? There's one major thing left undone. There's this small remnant of people. And that remnant will swell to a number that cannot be counted. And in that day, God will visit those disobedient people and He will open their eyes and they will look upon the One whom they have pierced, none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of Righteousness, and God will open their hearts to understand that they were the ones who put Jesus Christ on that cross and they are the ones who are deserving of eternal wrath and punishment forever and God will instead say to them, I have sent my Deliverer from Zion. And you've looked on Him whom you have pierced. And I am now ready by my electing grace to tell every one of you that you're saved. You're saved from the wrath to come. Oh, marvel of marvels. Covenant-keeping God. Don't think that just because they're on the back burner that He's forever set them aside. He has not. 
And he even says, verse 31, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you Gentiles, they, the Jews, also may now receive mercy. And whatever that now is, I don't know when that now is, but whenever it comes, whenever the now of God's prophetic timetable is here, that now will be in human history the culmination of the great salvation of all of the Jews whom God has predestined by His love to see Jesus Christ for who He really is. Their Redeemer. Just like we see Him as our Redeemer. And if there's any motivation in the Gentile church at this point to say, look at who I am. Look at what, the, look at what God has done to those Jews. He just set them aside. He's working with us now. They're done. They're history. Paul says, don't for one minute think that. Don't be superior. The Jews thought they were superior over all those Gentile nations because they had the adoption and the glory and the covenants. They thought they were in the in crowd then and he told them repeatedly, do you think I chose you because of something inherent in you? No, I chose you because of my grace. I chose you because of my mercy. And now he's telling the Gentiles the same thing. Don't you think that because God has chosen to set aside these people, that for one minute that means that you can boast. There's no arrogance there at all. Because one day God will deliver His people right from the deliverer Himself who comes out of Zion. God's going to do it. And if there's any motivation for God to do any of it, what is it? What is it? Is it about us? No. Look at verse 32. For God has consigned all, that's all Jewish believers... And all Gentile believers, He's consigned all of them to disobedience. Yes, it's true. Every single one of the Jews who are the elect of God, every one of the Gentiles who are the elect of God, as they come out of that womb, they are spouting lies. They are sinners by nature and by choice. They are all disobedient. They were wallowing in that field full of blood from their afterbirth. And they were spouting their own pride and their own arrogance and their superiority. And that's what all of us do. And God has imprisoned, literally that word consigned, imprisoned all of them to disobedience for a purpose. And what is that purpose? So that one day, when we see our imprisoned condition, when we see every one of ourselves for who we really are, that stinky, smelly, blood-wallowing group of people who deserve nothing but wrath and hell and judgment, God has consigned it. It's imprisoned upon us. It's in our minds and our hearts. It's in our actions. It's in our flesh. It's in everything that we do. We will see God say, and I allowed you to be in that condition and you were deserving of death. But here is what I did. I consigned the rest of them to eternal punishment. Here's what I've done to you. Verse 32. That he, God, may have mercy on all. Everybody in the world? Of course not. Is everybody going to be saved? Is universalism true? No. The all there means all Jewish, all Gentile believers, both races of people, everybody who was destined like the rest, the non-elect, to a hell-deserving judgment. He plucks out of the mass of sinful humanity both elect Jews and elect Gentiles, and he says, this is my plan. I'm going to take a group of both of you and by my sovereign pleasure, even though I have no constraining reason to do it when I look at your life. No constraining reason to do it when I look at you. But according to my character as a merciful God, I have every reason to do this because it exalts my mercy. Yes, I'll be seen as a wrathful God. Yes, I'm going to judge every bit of disobedience. And for those who do not believe in Jesus Christ and are consigned to hell forever, they will see my eternal wrath. And for those who are consigned for a time in disobedience will be shown at some point my mercy, even though they don't deserve it. 
This is the motivation. God's doing it for His glory. He's doing it for His mercy. So His mercy would be on display. Not me, not you, not Jews as a race, not Gentiles as a race. It isn't about race. It's about grace. It isn't so we can boast. It isn't so we can say racially, financially, ethnically, facially, financially, none of it. That God has bestowed something on us because there's something in us. No, 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 no. It's not about race. It's about grace. It's not about you and me. It's about mercy. He wants His mercy to be on display. He wants all of us everywhere here today to celebrate the Lord's table and say, Lord, why did you do it for me? You could have chosen every single person in the entire world so that everybody ultimately receives grace and nobody receives judgment. But you know what that would do? It would not put his character of wrath on display. And you know what he does by picking out some Jews and some Gentiles who have been locked up in disobedience and he decides to have mercy upon them? It exalts His mercy. So that He's seen both as a God of preeminent wrath and a God of preeminent mercy. Is that the kind of God you want to serve when you celebrate the Lord's table? I want you to bow your heads with me. This is, this is Lord, too much for us. You are the God of mercy. You've pledged your mercy to all who would ever believe. And we don't deserve it. We don't deserve your mercy. Why have you done this to us? Well, Paul tells us so that your mercy would be displayed on all who would ever believe. Oh Lord. No wonder Paul says. Oh the depth of the riches. And wisdom. And knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord. Or who has been his counselor. Who tells you what to do. Who has a gift given to him that he might be repaid? Who gives you a gift and expects you to repay us in return? It is we who owe you everything. For from you and through you and to you are all things. To you be glory for it. Amen.